Welcome to the Beyond Clinical Medicine program, what they don't teach you in residency. I'm Rob Strauss, Team Health's Chief Medical Training Officer, and this podcast involves the almost ubiquitous and surprisingly dangerous and risky behavior of vaping. While first promoted as a method of kicking the cigarette habit, we now know that vaping can lead to increased nicotine addiction and medical complications, including pulmonary disease, and even death, as has been recently publicized. Here today with us to discuss vaping, its history, and its dangers is Dr. David Hogan, Team Health Vice President of Educational Development and the Director of the Team Health Academic Consortium. David is one of the most prolific contributors to education that I know. I believe you created almost 50, that's five zero, webinars on important clinical topics, and they are both entertaining and erudite. I know you have and continue to work with the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention. You are actively involved in multiple educational processes, including an enormous number of faculty development and fellowship development programs. You have a very long CV. You've completed a teaching fellowship and a master's in public health. You're a multiple award winner, including more than 10 teaching awards. David, thank you for joining us today. Rob, thanks. It's an honor to be here. Great. Let's jump right in. Recently, vaping and its dangers have been a consistent part of the health media narrative. Could you summarize why e-cigarettes thought to be a solution to smoking sensation are now considered so unsafe? Yes. Um, I think we should start out, perhaps, with just defining what vaping is. Um, It was developed uh, a couple of decades ago, and in essence, it takes various substances um, and drips them or applies them to a hot coil in some sort of device. And the idea is that that makes a vapor, and then one can inhale that vapor, very similar to what you do when you smoke a cigarette. The only difference is how do you get that material vaporized into a form that you can inhale it. Um, This was thought for quite a while to be uh, at least to some degree safer, and perhaps the term cleaner was used than cigarette smoking because the idea was, okay, we're, we're going to just focus in on the particular substance like nicotine that we want to get in, and we'll do away with the tars and the other dangerous things that go along with cigarette smoking. And so for quite a while, it was promoted uh, by folks in the news media, by folks in uh, various talk shows and celebrities as a cleaner and better way of Um, smoking, as it were, and also to some degree by clinicians even. Because of that, you're in this situation where the public is utilizing a product for a particular thing, but at the same time, there's really no evidence supporting what we're doing. Um, So that's all fine and well until suddenly you start getting reports across the nation of individuals who are developing very severe and sometimes fatal lung illnesses and lung injury, and it's beginning to look like that may be associated with 
the practice of vaping or e-cigarette use. David, you say there is not data to show that vaping decreases uh, smoking of cigarettes or at least the addiction to nicotine, and in fact that there might be some evidence to show that it increases it. What is it about the solutions that are used in vaping that increase the addiction? Well, the issue with that is, if you really think about it, what are we doing when we are taking one practice and substituting it for another? Um, in the situation where we're using vaping, we're taking, for the most part, the most addictive and some would say potentially most dangerous part of the smoking habit, uh, the nicotine, and we're simply giving that to people in a different form. Well, as it turns out, um, the nicotine that's delivered through vaping typically is delivered uh, in a more efficient form in a smaller aerosol that actually gets way out into the terminal bronchioles and even the alveoli is absorbed better and often is at significantly higher concentration than just standard cigarette smoking. So granted, you may do away with, if we ignore the flavorings and all the other adulterants that go into the vaping solutions, um, we may be delivering a open quote, pure close quote, nicotine to the individual, but we're delivering it by a different mechanism, which may have impacts as well, and at a much higher concentration overall. And that's just not been studied. We don't know. What we do know is that we do have some potentially very efficient ways that you can decrease smoking. These are things like uh, cognitive therapy, motivational therapies, contingency therapies, and even multi-dimensional family therapies that could be used in association with a clinician following that individual at regular intervals, and then maybe using some of these nicotine-based things like the gums and, and lozenges and so on to help get the person over the nicotine addiction. But the bottom line is nicotine is addictive, and no matter what form you get it in, it continues to be addictive, and it continues to have bad impacts on the health of the individual. Okay. Well, let's talk about some of the problems other than the nicotine addiction. Clearly, lung disease is the feared complication of vaping. Can you describe some of the various uh, presentations? If we look back at what began to happen and what began to be reported, um, what we found was that typically young, supposedly healthy people were beginning to present to clinics and emergency departments across the nation with severe pulmonary injury. But as we begin to get more epidemiologic data on these folks, what we found was that most of them had an association with e-cigarette or vaping use. And so that avenue began to be explored. Not that it wasn't suspected and hasn't been suspected as a cause of lung injury for the last decade or more, uh, but just because we began to get a preponderance of information that these folks who came in just sick as heck uh, and were not really expected to have that kind of a syndrome all had an association with electronic cigarette use. Many of these people ended up needing to be admitted to the hospital. A number of them had been seen multiple times in clinics, 
two to three times in clinics or even emergency departments before they finally began to manifest a severe enough illness that the clinicians had some suspicion raised. Uh, about half of the folks initially required admission and a quarter or more of those individuals ended up in the intensive care unit, with many of them ending up on ventilators. And oftentimes they would develop a um, ARDS type of picture, um, and the management was somewhat difficult, and we even ended up with a number of fatalities. So this definitely raised interest. Um, it raised a lot of questions, and the CDC, in conjunction with some states and um, with the Food and Drug Administration, initiated some studies to try to determine what was going on, going on with these folks. Um, in addition, it was found as we begin to collect more of this data, that a lot of these folks, well more than half, would present initially with fairly severe gastrointestinal symptoms up to a couple of weeks prior to their presentation with lung disease. And that sort of mixed up the picture a little bit, um, making it a little more difficult to just attribute this to one particular thing. But the bottom line was these essentially healthy folks who were presenting to clinics and emergency departments, many of whom developed really severe lung disease, distress, some of whom died, and almost all of them had a joint history of e-cigarette use and or vaping. Share with us what's known about the association with vitamin E. Well, part of the situation is that when we begin to collect epidemiologic data on something that looks like an outbreak, what do we really want to know? Well, we want to know what's the cause? What is the, the underlying etiology of this group of people who are coming in with similar illness? So we began to notice that, all right, this is probably associated with vaping. So what is it about the vaping that may be causing the problems? Um, the studies have begun to reflect that using THC is definitely a risk factor because almost all, not all, but in the 80% range, all of these folks who end up with this severe lung injury from vaping um, have been vaping THC and or other cannabinoid type products, uh, even CBD oil in some cases. And so the question is, is that what's going on? Um, but along with that, you find that there are a lot of flavorings and a lot of other adulterants that go into these vaping solutions that get dripped on this hot coil. And is that a potential problem? Well, one of the things that we found that's fairly common in these solutions is something called diacetyl. Well, diacetyl is a flavoring that goes into uh, a lot of things. That is the buttery flavor associated with microwave popcorn. And what they found was that if you inhale the vaporized di diacetyl, that um, it does impact the pulmonary tree. And in fact, people who work around this stuff in industry often can develop bronchiolitis obliterans, which is a bad deal because essentially your alveoli go away. Um, the interesting thing with this is that we have found through data collection that essentially 100% of people in a particular study that was done with the CDC where they actually lavaged out the lungs who have severe pulmonary injury also had um, vitamin E acetate. 
in there. And so when you look back at that particular substance, it is well known to be a pulmonary irritant and a uh, substance that can cause significant injury to the pulmonary tree. And uh, hence the CDC actually has come out with some recommendations uh, for the vaping industry about not using that particular substance. But the important thing is to realize that you have to keep looking for other potential causes because there's a lot of stuff and there are a lot of contaminants, particularly in the uh, non-commercially made or the, the uh, illicit substances and solutions that you can get for your vaping equipment um, that contain other potentially uh, damaging pulmonary irritants. David, you just mentioned that the CDC is coming out with some recommendations. Now that vaping is a more recognized danger, what else is being done at the public health level to create increasing awareness? Probably the most important thing that's being done at this point to try to decrease the impact of this type of outbreak is education. If you go to the CDC website, the very first thing that pops up on the website banner right across the top is uh, the uh, pulmonary associated lung disease. And they've actually um, renamed this thing. They now call it electronic cigarette and vaping product associated lung injury. But the easy thing to remember about that is EVALI, E-V-A-L-I. The primary thing is that this information is being pushed out now just to get people aware that Although we have for a number of years talked about vaping as being cleaner and safer and something that you can do in public without um, secondhand smoke or risk to other individuals, uh, and it's been promoted a lot along those lines, that really was all anecdotal. There is nothing in the literature that supports that that is a safer thing. And so getting that education out to the public and getting it out to our clinicians so that they understand that this is not necessarily a safe thing and in fact may have complications, some of which obviously might be worse, at least in the acute phase, than actual cigarette smoking. Um, so overall, the recommendations of the CDC at this point make a lot of sense. Don't vape. If you haven't started, don't start. Um, and if you do vape, don't vape THC products. If you get these off market or if you get these solutions uh, from family or friends or, or other individuals, um, you really don't have any idea what's in there or how much is in there. And so you, you, if you're going to vape, at least make sure that you get a, a reputable commercial source um, they've also made the recommendation to the industry, don't put vitamin E acetate into those solutions because we know that it's a pulmonary irritant. They also talk about not using flavors or other adulterants. If you're going to vape nicotine, then vape nicotine. They also have come out specifically with recommendation about smoking cessation. The CDC and the FDA do not recommend utilization of vaping uh, as a smoking cessation modality. And the reason for that is that it, there's no validation to any of those studies. The most important thing for us as clinicians is to 
recognize that this is a potential problem, particularly when you have that combination of somebody who should be healthy, is fairly young, and they come in with really significant pulmonary disease and or they, they maybe have GI symptoms that preceded or are in combination with that, just ask about vaping. Take a exposure history. Be a little bit of an epidemiologist. Now, while we're talking about contaminants associated with the vaping process, it's important to know that when you drop these complex organic chemicals onto that hot coil, that pyrolysis occurs. Well, what is that? Think of it in this way. It's just like when you have a house fire and you have complex materials that burn at high temperature. You really don't know what substances are developed by that burning process, but what you do know is that most of them are very toxic. Well, another example of the cure for the problem being worse than the initial problem. David, you mentioned that a clinician has to have a high degree of suspicion. So if a clinician suspects vaping as a cause of an otherwise unexplained presentation, one, how should the clinician confront the patient? And two, if discharging that patient, what information can the clinician provide? Well, the first thing the clinician should do is assess the pulmonary problem, just like you would in any other situation. Vaping is definitely a associated cause of this severe pulmonary injury, but it is by far not the most common thing. It's important, however, that the clinician ask the patient about exposure to vaping substances. And you should go through the process of simply asking, do you vape? If you do, then how often do you do it? Where do you get your supplies? What do you vape? Try to get that baseline information. More than anything, that helps us on a national level to begin to focus on what potential causes might be and to track down and eliminate those potential causes for this severe injury associated with vaping. As far as what to talk to the patient about during discharge, patients who come in with pulmonary problems and you treat that, it seems to respond well, and you've talked to them and you find out, yes, they are indeed people who do vaping. At that point, it's very important to educate that patient about the known association between vaping and severe pulmonary disease and to let them know that should they develop severe gastrointestinal symptoms or progressive and more severe um, pulmonary problems that they need to get back in for follow-up, either to the clinic or back to the emergency department. Um, the earlier treatment is initiated for any of these pulmonary problems, obviously, the better the patient does. The patient needs to be educated and we need to document that we have spoken to that patient about the issues associated with vaping and severe pulmonary illness. Thanks, Dave. You've dramatically expanded my understanding of vaping and the associated problems, and I'm sure this has been enormously helpful to our listeners. Before closing, do you have any final thoughts you'd like to share? Actually, yes. When I started this business a long time ago, I thought of myself as a heart attack, gunshot, car accident doc, and that's what I trained for, that's what I existed for, and then, obviously, as things moved along, 
you begin to find that you were the safety valve for the nation and that much of what you did was routine uh, chronic care and or acute exacerbations of those chronic illnesses. I used to tell the residents that we were the first 30 minutes of everybody else's specialty. And now I tell them we're the first couple of days of everybody else's specialty. <laughs> when you look at the emergency department overcrowding and so on. But something that has become very obvious to me over the last few years is the involvement of the emergency health care and ward medicine and ICU in public health issues. If you look back over, let's just say the last two or three years, how many major public health events have directly impacted us in uh, clinical care? And there are quite a few, and they're not just local. Many of them are broad spectrum and national. So if anything, I would like the clinician to stop and think a little bit about the implications of all of us needing to be just a little bit of a public health doc and a little bit of an epidemiologist so that we can think beyond what's just in front of us and particularly when things don't make sense, we get a little more information and we try to start connecting dots. And when necessary, we call for help. David, that's sound advice. Thank you for all the work that you do. In addition, I know that you have other areas of focus, including leading a program to address human trafficking that includes toolkits to recognize and to respond to it. Perhaps you'd be willing to join us again in the future. I'd love to do that and would be honored to be asked back. Thank you. I hope you've been as informed about this timely topic as I have by this Beyond Clinical Medicine podcast with Dr. David Hogan. If you have any questions about this topic or suggestions for other topics, please contact us at beyondclinicalmedicine.org.